Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Ivy, the younger sister, and my fact of the day is that I am honestly terrified to record this episode because we have tried to record about this topic before and it was disastrous, much like our scenarios and our unnecessarily disastrous feature that we have for our Patreons. All of those things that we always fear happening did happen and our previous recording of this topic was completely unusable, and I am so scared to record this again. But we're going to do it, because today is is a good day to talk about this, and this is an important topic. Not only was like the entire recording unusable, but it took two to three times longer than normal to record it because of all the technical issues. So we're really hoping that does not happen today. Our stubborn asses just kept trying to go at it. Even though everything was going wrong, we were like, no, we can still salvage this. And then the final recording we ended up with, 75% of the sound was just gone. So it was was completely unusable. It was bad. I'm scared. Persistent is what we are. You can say a lot of things about us, but we are most definitely persistent. I am Autumn, the older sister. And my fact of the day ties in with our topic of the day, which is that... I I suck at supporting people. I am not really good at it. As a child, I was required to support my mother. I was required to support the family. I turned into an enabler. And as an adult, I've had to really go the opposite end of the spectrum and be really rigid and not offer a lot of support a lot of the time. So it's it's really triggering for me when people need my support. It really is. And I have to invest a lot of work in myself on top of trying to support them. So I really suck at it. So bad. How do you go about supporting somebody who is experiencing some mental health struggles? Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, we are just going to preface this right at the top and say that we are not focusing today's episode on crisis situations. This is not the life and death kind of scenarios that can come up with mental health. Today, we're just going to be talking about how do you help people who are, for the most part, they're doing okay-ish, and you want to be there for them. I think the very, very first piece of this is knowing how much you're able and willing to invest. And I know this is a first tip that we've given in a lot of our how-to sort of episodes, but I do think it is extremely relevant here because if you overextend yourself in trying to support somebody that has mental health struggles, you have the potential of making the situation worse. Whether you try to do more than you know how to do or provide more than you're capable of and then let the person down, either of those situations have the potential to make the situation worse. So when you want to support somebody that's having mental health struggles, you first need to know how much you're able and willing to invest. And those are two separate things because willingness is more about how much mental wherewithal do you have? How many fucks do you have to give to support this person? And ability has to do partially with your resources, but also a lot with your knowledge. How much can you actually help them? Because when you do start getting into mental health struggles, you do have the potential to have significant mental health struggles. And if you don't have the knowledge to address that and you overextend yourself and you try to provide guidance that you are not qualified to give, again, you can make things much more problematic. 
And it makes things problematic, not just for the other person, but for you as well, because you end up being very drained in the process. A lot of times resentment starts to grow because you're in over your head and then the other person starts struggling even more and it can become a really toxic codependent kind of situation. So it's it's really important when you are trying to gauge if you want to get involved in the first place, what are you actually capable of? What knowledge do you have? Uh, what resources do you have available to you? Because sometimes even if you do have a decent amount of knowledge, you may not have the time, the energy, the money, uh, the ability to help everybody. And it may not be good for you or the other people in your life that you're close to for you to invest a ton of time into helping this individual. But then even if you do ultimately decide that you want to support this person, you need to start considering as there are levels of support. The way that you're going to support a coworker that you just kind of had casual acquaintance with is going to be very different from how you would support a intimate partner. Even if those two people may be having similar struggles, you are more than likely not going to get as involved or invested in what's going on with your coworker. You're going to maintain some level of separation for a variety of reasons. But if this is your intimate partner and you live with them every day, you're going to be more involved. If so, there's multiple levels of support. It's not all just baseline same thing applies to everybody. And I think with that too, I want to say it's okay anywhere on that spectrum. It really is okay. If all you can do is offer a smile and nod, quick phone call to check in on somebody, that's something. That level of support is something. And that goes all the way to the other end. If you have the resources and the education and the experience and the wherewithal to offer an extreme amount of support to that person, that's okay too. It's just figuring out what you're capable and willing. And that will change and that will shift. But there will be some general ideas when you're going to step into that situation of support. Not only is it okay to be anywhere on that, that spectrum of levels, and it's totally okay to say no completely. Also be aware that some people will try to pull you in further than you're comfortable with going so it's really important, again, if you choose to be involved and to be supportive of this person, establish how much help you're willing to give and be confident in your ability to step back and say no before you get in over your head. Because sometimes a person who's struggling with mental health issues, especially if they don't have a whole lot of other support, whether they mean to or not, they can try to pull you in further than you're actually qualified or capable of, of being involved. So it's really important to be able to draw a line in the sand where, you know, I want to help, but I can only support you to this level. I can help you find additional support, but I cannot be this person for you. Now, assuming we haven't terrified you of trying to support somebody with mental health struggles, we're going to assume that you are wanting to support someone. Well, how do you even how do you start doing that? What do you do? Well, the very first thing you have to do is you need to recognize that something's wrong at all. And you do that in part by educating yourself about mental health. And there's lots of ways to do this. I went the very expensive route. I got a master's degree in counseling that was pretty much a useless degree. But now I have lots of information about mental health. <laughs> I think Ivy took a different route. Yeah, I, I mostly did, you know, therapy. And I read a whole lot of psychology, sociology, and self-help books. 
I have read so many that my bookshelves are full of them. And I have now gotten to a point where I can identify the ones that are just cliche and full of shit versus the ones that are actually useful. I've probably read too many of them. If you don't have uh, years and years of personal energy and profit to invest in learning about mental health, there are some much easier ways to do this. One of the very first ones that I definitely recommend is a mental health first aid class. These are offered online. They're offered in person in a lot of the larger city areas. But basically, it just provides you a very general overview of mental health, how to tell when something's wrong, and how to initiate a conversation. So if you have no experience really with mental health struggles, I really, really recommend a mental health first aid class. It gives you just the basics you need to even start on this journey. Another excellent resource is NAMI. This is the National Association of Mental Illness. NAMI is an excellent go-to resource for anything mental health. You can get education, you can find help, just about anything you can think of regarding mental health, you will find through NAMI in some way. So they are an excellent go-to resource. Now there is of course social media and there is, you know, just regular Google searches. Be wary of these though. Verify the validity of your source, okay? Because there is a lot of harmful information out there. There's a lot of information out there that's intended just to profit somebody. And so you really want to check the source and the validity of whatever you find online or whatever you find in a social media community. And I can speak to that a little bit, being very cautious and wary of, like Autumn said, people who are looking to profit, but also people who are coming at things with strong personal biases and stigmas. I have been in several Facebook groups over the years that have to do with mental health things for one reason or another. And one of the things that I've noticed is that while they can be wonderful places to get support, they really, really can. And I've met some amazing people in those groups that are still friends of mine to this day. There are also people in there who are giving harmful information or who pressure other people in the group to do things that are not helpful or not good for them. Those groups, they don't, they don't really vet people. And so you have some people in those groups who are handling things in a really healthy way. They're getting help. They're very knowledgeable. They use their experience to help other people who are just starting to seek support for certain things. But then you also have people in those groups who have been going through some shit for a long time. And to be perfectly honest, they're just tired of it. And it's warped their perspectives over time. They're angry. They're bitter. They give really bad advice. They can be very toxic people. So be very, very conscious of that when you just start Googling things or you start getting involved in these social media groups. Be conscious of where these people are coming from with things. Take everything with a grain of salt and really, like Autumn said, verify your resources. Don't just believe everything that you read or everything that you hear on the internet. We shouldn't have to say that, but there it is. You know, a little disclaimer there. Don't be stupid on the internet. That's that's the basis of it. Don't be stupid. Use your discernment. You're smart. I believe in you. 
find good information, find good people that uh, are genuinely supportive of you while you're helping to support other people. I think it's also important to educate yourself about yourself as well, because there are so many stigmas and so many fears that are just so normative in our culture when it comes to mental health, when it comes to mental illness, and they permeate so much of everything. We don't even notice that they exist. They're just normal. And so we don't see them and we don't question them. And I can liken this a lot to questioning your sexuality. In this culture, typically, if you're heterosexual, you never really have to question your sexuality. That was me for the longest time. I was a heterosexual girl in a heterosexual relationship. That was just how it was. I didn't really think much about it until I got into a relationship that required me to question that. And once I started questioning it, I realized I had a lot of biases. I had a lot of wrong assumptions. I had a lot of programmed information in my head that was not accurate and that was affecting how I was interacting with other people. But this would have never come about if I didn't stop and question it. So it's important to look at yourself and say, okay, how does the idea of mental illness make me feel? If somebody is talking to themselves on the street, does that make me uncomfortable? What about if they're punching a wall? Where where do you feel with this? If somebody is depressed, do you feel that's within their control or without of their control? There are a lot of misconceptions about mental health. There are a lot of stigmas about mental illness. And because they permeate everything, they get into us. And so you need to know what your stigmas are and what your biases are so you're not operating on those and pushing those forward and harming others with them. Once you kind of get that idea of yourself, now you're ready to start learning about the other person. First things first, when you're starting to educate yourself about the other person, if they have a diagnosis of, of some kind, that's a great place for you to start. Start researching what that diagnosis means. Start researching the kinds of symptoms that they have in their day-to-day experiences. And maybe don't always just look at purely clinical resources. Maybe see if you can find some resources of people of other people who also have that diagnosis and get kind of an idea of what it's like to live with that diagnosis. Don't get all of your information from just one person, but try to pull in information that's that's both clinical and then also lived experiences so you can get a sense of what comes with that diagnosis. But then also remember that even if somebody does have a diagnosis, that doesn't necessarily mean they are going to exhibit every single symptom or that they're going to exhibit those things in the same way because People are different. What's normal for that diagnosis may not necessarily be what's normal for that person. I know a big one for me that's pretty pretty different from the average person is that with my bipolar disorder, I'm bipolar type 2, and when I get really depressed to the point where I'm feeling suicidal, I start talking about suicide casually and openly. There's a lot of stigmas around suicide. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anger. Suicide, that, that topic of conversation provokes very strong emotions in a lot of people, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable discussing it at all. I am so used to having suicidal ideation and dealing with depression at that level that for me, when I start experiencing it, I'm just open and direct about it. 
first thing I do when I start feeling that again, when that suicidal ideation starts popping up and it's becoming a pattern again, first thing I do is tell everybody in my life that I'm close to. And it's not because I'm seeking attention. It's because I want the people in my life that I'm close to, to know what's going on with me so that they can support me if I need that. But also for me, another reason why I do it is it's kind of a reverse guilt trip. Because if I tell them that I'm feeling suicidal and then I kill myself, you know, I'm kind of an asshole because now they're always going to wonder what they could have done more. They knew what, what more could they have done? And they're going to live with that for the rest of their lives. And I don't want that to happen to them. So first thing I do when I start feeling suicidal, I tell anybody and everybody that I feel a really close, intimate connection with because it's a fail safe to keep me from doing it. And it lets those people in my life know that I need a little extra support and maybe I need them to check in on me a little bit more often than they normally would. I think knowing what is normal for that person is, is very important as well, because if the person has had mental health struggles for a long time, they're in their 30s or 40s and they've been dealing with this since they were in their childhood, they are going to act differently. They're not going to act in ways you expect. And so it's really important to understand them on that level and to know then what is a problem and what is not a problem. Like Ivy said, when she talks casually about suicide, that's not a red flag. But if somebody else does it, that's a huge red flag. So you need to be nuanced in that person. Also the behaviors of what is concerning and what's not. One of the most concerning behaviors that I show that really freak a lot of people out are meltdowns. So if you have autism, not everybody with autism has them, but you may potentially have what they call autistic meltdowns. And these look different for everybody, but for me, they look pretty scary. Um, depending on what's going on with me, it may be screaming, just literally screaming at the top of my lungs, echoing in the hills, literally echoing in the hills where I live, screaming. It can be punching things such as brick walls. It can be banging my head on a wall. And that is really scary behavior, especially if you've never been around violence or you've been around anybody that's acting out or an adult that basically looks like they're having a temper tantrum. That's not what it is, but that's what it looks like. But that's just part of how I operate, unfortunately. I've done a lot to reduce those, but every now and again, they do happen. And it's not a big thing anymore. It's embarrassing as hell when it does because I do lose control of myself, but it doesn't mean anything's horribly wrong. It means I got too escalated. I got too overwhelmed in the moment and I need a few minutes to calm down. And that's what it is. That's it. Yet if somebody else were to have those same reactions where they lost their shit and started punching a wall, that could be indicative of needing crisis service. So the same behavior is going to be very different depending on the person, which is why it's so important to know how they normally behave. It's also important to know with that person what kind of support is acceptable for them because everybody has different ways they need to be supported depending on what's going on, depending on who they are, if it's trauma, depending on what age that trauma happened. The type of support you offer is going to be very different dependent on that person in those circumstances. So a great example of this one for me, a lot of times people want to offer me options. When I say something's wrong, they're like, oh, well, well, you could try this or you could try that or you could try this. If you start offering me options when I am escalated or when I am upset or when I am emotional, 
I am going to very logically argue with you why every single option you've offered me is stupid, wrong, and downright offensive. And you're going to feel like an idiot because I don't do well with options. What I do well with is validation. So when I come in and I say, somebody cut me off today, it's the worst day ever. I think I'm going to blow my brains out because this is so horrible. I need validation. That is the first step I need. I need somebody to go, wow, you sound like you're really upset and you had a really hard day. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you need a hug? But everybody's different. Some people don't do well with that. You come at some people with a hug and they're probably going to punch you in the face. So you need to know what kind of support is welcome and what kind of support is going to be escalating further. I I am of that variety. Don't come at me with a hug because I probably will throat punch you. I don't like hugs. That ties into what is acceptable and okay in terms of support for me. Because when I'm struggling, generally, what I need is to be left the fuck alone. Some people, when they're struggling, they need the, the people in their life to swoop in and be more attentive to them, give them more time and attention, just really be there for them. That feels very cloying to me. I start feeling very claustrophobic. I don't like it. I'm not a I'm not a particularly affectionate person. I don't like people getting overly involved in my business. I mostly just want to be left alone. So when I withdraw, what I need most is you know maybe just an occasional text. Hey, you still alive? Just checking on you, letting you know that I care about you. That's all I need. I don't want anything more than that. For the most part, I just want to be left alone until I get through this particular struggle and then I'll be all right. But again, it's one of those things that's very specific to the individual. There are a lot of people that if they don't get that rush of support from the people around them, they feel as though nobody loves them. And then that can escalate things further for them. And they can start feeling more depressed and more suicidal and thinking that they're unworthy and nobody cares. But for me, if my friends just check in once every couple of weeks to make sure I'm alive, I'm like, oh, you care about me. Because the other thing that bothers me when people rush in with support is that my brain, because I am so hyper-independent, it interprets that as, oh, I see you think that I'm weak and incapable of caring for myself. Oh, great. I'm, I'm broken and fucked up. I'm so broken and fucked up that I need you to come in and take care of me. That's how my brain interprets it. That's not how everybody operates, though. So really educate yourself about the individual that you're working with, what's normal behavior for them, even if it's not normal behavior by everybody else's standards, and what actually works for them with support. And that's trial and error. With that, too, those two concepts tie into each other because the level of support and the type of support they're going to need is going to change depending on their behavior. So for Ivy, I know she does well being left alone. And if you get into her face, it's going to make things worse. But there have been points in the past where she has been so out of control with her behavior that I knew something was significantly wrong and I had to step in. And that was the correct choice because I knew her and what her typical behavior was. And I saw that this behavior was such an extreme and drastic difference. I knew that her normal level of support was not going to be acceptable and that I was going to have to step it up. And that also meant I was probably going to have to offend her. But in that moment, that is what she needed. So that idea of what is normal for that person and what kind of support they need 
those go hand in hand because depending on how different they're acting and what's going on, the support they need is going to change as well. I think keep in mind too, that when you do have to step in like that, they may or may not respond well, because even the thought of that, yes, there have been times when it was probably necessary for Autumn to step in. Do I still get pretty pissed off and kind of resentful and defensive about it when I think back on it? Yeah, I do. That's part and parcel of it. So don't always expect for that person to be grateful for your interference, even if it's necessary. And don't even always expect them to be thankful for it in retrospect. I am thankful, Autumn, but I also am still kind of pissed off at you. Anyway, (laughs) that's okay. That's part of the awkward conversations that come with talking about mental health stuff with the people that are close to you. And that's our our next point to cover is starting those conversations. Because once you recognize something is wrong, if you want to support that person, you're going to have to talk about it. There's no way around it. You can't really be sneaky about it and have it go well. It's always best to just approach it head on have a conversation. I did write a blog on that idea, um, talking about others' mental health. There's two of them out there talking about your own and then talking about someone else's. So make sure you read the right one. Other guys are going to have a weird conversation. <laughs> but it just basically gives you some some basic tips on how to even start having a conversation about mental health. And again, if you do that mental health first aid class, they also offer excellent tips out there as well. And I think NAMI also has some resources about starting that conversation. And it will feel awkward. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that right there. It will feel awkward. That's just how it is. It's a learning experience. And it's a learning experience for that person at that time. I've talked with Ivy enough that I know what's okay and what's not and how to say things and how to term things and how to communicate with her. But when I go into meeting another person and how to support them, it's still kind of weird. So if it's awkward, that's okay. You're probably on the right track. And take some comfort in that, that it it never stops being awkward. It's a difficult thing to talk about. And it's really difficult for a lot of people to talk about it because there are a lot of misconceptions and social stigmas and taboos around mental health. So take comfort in that. If you feel weird about it, so does everybody else who talks about it. That's just the way that it is. And sometimes even with the same person that you've known for a really long time, it can still be awkward to discuss certain things. People do change over time. And maybe you, you've got things really down pat with certain aspects of that person and their mental health struggles, but then something evolves in them or changes or something new comes up and it's awkward all over again. So it's always a work in progress. You're always going to be learning more about mental health. You're always going to be learning more about yourself and about that other person. And that's part of growth. Being a little uncomfortable is part of growth. And it's also part of intimacy. If you are really connected to this person that you are supporting through these mental health struggles, that is an intimate relationship. And intimacy means vulnerability. And vulnerability means being a little uncomfortable or sometimes a lot of uncomfortable, but that's the only way that you move forward. It's the only way that things can get better, that things can improve and that you can get closer. And I think another reason that it is so awkward for so many people is because many of us were never really taught how to have these conversations because these conversations are direct 
They are very authentic. They are very open and they are about very, very deep, meaningful topics that are very relevant to our lives. And that's not something we're educated to talk about. And because of the stigma that around that surrounds mental illness and mental health struggles in our society, we are actively encouraged to not have these conversations. And that's part of why they feel awkward is because they feel taboo. You feel like you shouldn't be talking about this stuff. And that is societal propaganda. Societal propaganda says, oh, we don't talk about that. But when we don't talk about that, people die. So deal with the awkward, deal with the uncomfort, get a little bit of growth and save somebody's life by willing to even just have this conversation. But keep in mind, not everybody's going to be receptive to this. Just as you feel awkward and uncomfortable, the other person might as well. Now, some people are going to be relieved and they're going to be like, oh my God, I'm glad you asked. And they're just going to open up to you and they're going to be so thankful that you're willing to say something to them and be supportive. But that's not always going to be the case. Some people don't even recognize that something's wrong because we are not, we're also not educated to be aware of our own mental health. Some people don't realize how wrong things have gotten. They don't understand that they are struggling at all. And so they're going to write it off and just think you're crazy. But when you bring it up and somebody else brings it up and you bring it up again next week, gently, not forcefully, just gently, they might start getting a clue like, hey, maybe something's going on. I need to check in with myself. Other people are, are very aware that something's going on, but they don't want something to be going on. And so they are in denial. They just, they don't want to deal with it. And if they're not receptive, that's okay. If they're not in crisis, it's okay to let it be. You can receive them on whatever level they are at, and you can take baby steps, multiple attempts, multiple conversations, a little thought here, a little thought there. You don't have to badger the person with your support. You can let them lead the way as long as they're not in a crisis time. It can actually take quite a while and quite a few conversations. It, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. There's somebody that I care about very deeply that I have been going through this process with for a few years now. When I first met them, their self-esteem was just completely shot. Their anxiety was really high. They had depression. I could see all of these things. They were not ready to acknowledge those things in themselves. And there were some things that they weren't even aware of. They were raised in, an, in a very rigid environment where trauma was only life and death. If you were not being murdered, it wasn't trauma. But they actually do have a very complex trauma history. Some of it's life and death and some of it is not. But their perception of what trauma is was so skewed that they just saw themselves as being garbage. They just saw themselves as being weak and they didn't understand why they couldn't get their shit together because they didn't even know that they'd been through a significant trauma. Their perception of what that meant was so warped and it took... The first, I'd say like the first year, year and a half for me to even be able to coax them gently into recognizing that what they had been through was really intense and that what they had been through would leave an impact on anyone. Keep in mind that it can take a lot of time. It can take weeks. It can take months. It, it may take years. But if you're really invested in being there for that person and supporting them, keep finding ways to bring it up. Again, like Autumn was saying, don't badger them. 
Don't force things on them. Just look for opportunities to bring things up as situations allow for you to broach those topics again. Be gentle about it. Sometimes you may be, need to be a little bit indirect about it. Sometimes you may need to you know, come in sneaky from the side and kind of use yourself as an example or use or use events that are going on in the world as examples to help them to recognize that these things do happen to other people or other people experience these same mental health struggles. And maybe it's okay if I acknowledge it. Maybe it's okay if I accept that I'm having a hard time with these things. Maybe it doesn't make me weak and fucked up and broken. It can take a long time to get somebody to that point. But if you really care about that person and you really want to be involved in this process of, of helping lift them up and get to a better space, it's, it's often well worth the effort. As long as you're not overdoing it, not pushing them too hard and not getting yourself in over your head. On that note, though, I do also want to say that sometimes people are reluctant because of the circumstances or because of you. So for example, if you see a coworker is having a struggle and you pop your head over the cubicle wall to talk to them about it, or you talk to them while you're stocking shelves, whatever your job happens to be, they may not want to talk about it because it's work time. And it's kind of awkward to bring your shit out in front of everybody. It's also possible the person may not want to talk to you because of you. And that may not be anything you did wrong, and it may not even be anything about you. Perhaps you remind them of somebody that traumatized them. Perhaps they don't feel like they have a close enough connection with you. Perhaps they have a crush on you and don't want you to think badly about them. So sometimes it is you they don't want to talk to. Try not to take that personally. If they have other supports, Maybe contact one of the other supports and say, hey, I've been worried about so-and-so. They don't seem to want to talk to me. Be very clear. You are not stirring the pot here. You are not starting shit. You are not spreading rumors. You are contacting one or two specific other supports to say, I am concerned about this person because they are behaving X, Y, Z, and that is it. You don't keep going on. You don't try to butt into their lives, but also be aware of that. If you really want to support the person, sometimes you're not the one that's going to be able to support them. Sometimes it has to be somebody else and don't take it personally. It's usually not about you. You also, of course, when you're supporting somebody need to learn how to respond because if you do have that conversation and they start to open up to you, well, crap, now what? <laughs> because you said, hey, I'm worried about you. What's going on? And they're like, ah, God, I'm glad you asked. I really feel horrible lately. I've been thinking constantly about killing myself. That's a really big statement to be like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with that. And even lesser statements when somebody says, you know, hey, what's going on? You don't seem to be yourself lately. Yeah, I've just been having a lot of trouble. I've struggled with anorexia in my past. I just haven't been able to eat for the past two days. Again, if you're not well-versed in mental health or you're not well-versed with these topics, what do you do now? They opened up. That's good, right? And now you have to say something back. The ball's in your court and you're just kind of frozen being like, uh, I don't know what to do here. What is the appropriate response? Because there is no appropriate scripted response. This is now all improv. This is now all you coming up with completely unique things to say in this situation. And so that's why you learn it by doing. So you can get as much education as you want, and that is going to help a lot. But then you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to practice it. And if it's the first time, you're probably going to say something stupid. 
that's okay. <laughs> Own it. When you'd be like, oh gosh, well, have you tried eating something you like? Okay, wait, I'm sorry. That was, that was insensitive and irrelevant. Let me try that again. And remember, silence is okay. If you need a few minutes to think about that, or you're not sure what to say, that's okay. You don't have to have all the answers. You weren't going in to have answers and to provide answers to the person. You were going in to support them and to validate them and hopefully help them not to answer and fix things. So if you get that conversational ball rolled back to you and you're just deer in the headlights, you can admit that. And then you continue to move forward with the conversation. You say what you can, you learn from their interactions and you learn by doing. And as just a normal person, you cannot expect yourself to approach these sorts of situations from a professional vantage point. Even if you have acquired a lot of knowledge and education about these kinds of things, you're still dealing with an individual and that individual is going to be unique and your dynamic with them is going to be unique. And you also have to keep in mind that you are not their therapist. You are not a professional that is helping them in this situation. You can't expect yourself to act as a professional. And it's not even a great idea to try to build that sort of dynamic with them. Back when I was working in the mental health industry, this is actually a conversation I had to have a lot because I worked with a lot of adolescents and a lot of kids. And they would say, oh, you're my friend or this is my best friend. And they'd introduce me that way. And I would correct them. And I know that sounds very, I guess, undermining or rude or even damaging to correct that when somebody says, oh, you're my friend. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I didn't say it that way, but it's a very important distinction to make. And, and like I told the children, I am not your friend. I am a treatment professional. And that's a good relationship to have. And you don't want me to be your friend. And they're like, well, of course I do. We should be friends. And I said, no, because if we're friends and you hit me in the face, well, then I'm going to be upset about that. And I maybe won't talk to you anymore or I won't show up for a while because when we're friends, you hitting me in the face is as equally about me as it is about you. But as a treatment professional, when you hit me in the face, I may be upset, but I understand that this is completely about you and it's not really that much about me. And I'm able to rein in my emotions because I'm not emotionally connected on that level with you. And I can go, okay, what's going on? And we can go through the process of dealing with this behavior. And while mental health struggles may not always be hitting somebody in the face, it's that same concept of when you are a friend, that is very much a two-way street. It's interactive. It's same level. It's peer. But when you are a therapist or a mental health professional of some kind, it's one-way street. And that's part of what makes that relationship safe. And it's also what sometimes puts that person in an authoritative place, even if the therapist themselves is not trying to be a person of authority by the very nature of the relationship they become one and that is not the kind of power dynamic you want in an interpersonal relationship and, and another thing too with that is again you don't have the knowledge necessary individuals that are licensed mental health practitioners have had a significant amount of education they have also had a significant amount of experience dealing with this they also have supervisors that are there to help them respond and they have to continue educating themselves so they have a lot of knowledge and a lot of tools and the relationship is completely different. And the thing is, is you don't necessarily want to be their therapist. Even if they have one, they don't need another one. What they need 
is a friend. And a friend is just as an important part of the support system as a therapist is because there's only so much the therapist can do. They're a certain part of the week. They're a regimented little bit of it. You're part of their everyday life. And that lower level, intentional, present support on a daily basis is is equally important, if not sometimes more important than that once a week therapy session. So you don't have to be their therapist. And sometimes it's good that you're not because that frees you to be their friend. This is Autumn from the Different Functional Podcast. Ivy and I both understand how difficult it can be to support someone else, or hell, even to support yourself. To make this process just a little easier, we created a simple one-page mental health support plan. This plan, which can be completed digitally or printed, takes the confusion out of communicating support needs to others, or even to yourself. This week only, the mental health support plan will be on sale for only 99 cents. So head over to our website, differentfunctional.com slash products, and get your mental health support plan today. While support does need to be tailored to the person and the situation and what's going on, there are some basic things you can do overall, though, to offer support to somebody that is going through some mental health struggles. First thing you need to realize, though, is a lot of people that are going through mental health struggles may not know what they need. So if you step in and say, oh my gosh, I really want to help you. What can I do? How can I help? How can I be of service? They may say that they're fine, or they may deny needing help, or they may just say, I don't know. Because a lot of us, when we are struggling, we don't know. Especially if this is a new mental health struggle, they've not dealt with depression, they've recently had a trauma, they've not had to deal with anything like this before, they don't know what to do with it. And some people, even if they've been having difficulties since childhood, they don't know because they've never actually stopped and focused on it. They've spent so long running from it, so long denying it, so long trying to be normal and pretend they don't have this, that they've never turned around and faced it. So they don't know what they need from other people. Yeah, I've noticed this in a lot of people, in a lot of my romantic partnerships, especially, I've noticed that I would see that my partner was struggling with something. And I would ask them, how can I help to support you or take some of the burden off? What do you need? And they would get frustrated too. It, it wouldn't just be like, oh, I don't know. It would be like, I don't know. Okay. And I used to take that really personally, but then I, I started trying to put myself in my younger self's shoes because Early on in the process of trying to understand myself, I also did not know what I needed. I didn't know what was going on with me. I was confused. I was upset. I knew I was upset and miserable most of the time. But the last thing I wanted was for somebody to ask me what I needed, because how the fuck am I supposed to know? And I would get really agitated too. So I try to remember now that if... I'm trying to be supportive and I'm trying to help and they're getting irritated with me. It's probably because they're stuck in a space where they don't know either and they're really overwhelmed and they're stressed out and they're anxious and they're, they're struggling. They're legitimately struggling. So having somebody ask, what do you need? When you're already overwhelmed, just makes you feel even more overwhelmed. Even if you want that support, it's like, I don't know. Like I'm having a hard time figure, figuring this out 
it helped me figure it out, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what I need. That's one of those things to be really cognizant of when you are trying to support somebody who's dealing with some mental health struggles. Not only is it possible that they may not know what they need, if you push too much in asking them, they may actually get really agitated and that can make the problem worse. Sometimes you figure out what they need, not by asking them, but by observing them, observing them over time, seeing what things seem to set them off or what things seem to make them feel overwhelmed. It's part of that process of learning as you go, because they're not always going to have the answers for you. And I know you want answers, you want to help, but sometimes they're not going to know. And sometimes pressuring them to tell you is just going to make things worse. And there are a few basic things that you can just try and you probably can't typically go too wrong with them. Validation is a big one. A lot of people that are struggling, if you've got a big motion, you've got a lot of struggles going on, you do like to be validated. It feels good just to knowing that you're not wrong, that you're not insane, that your emotion makes sense, that somebody else gets it. Validation is a human need and it's really important. So validating. If somebody's like, God, I'm just having such a hard time. Wow, that sounds really difficult. It sounds like you're struggling. Or I'm sorry to hear that you're going through that. Or wow, that must really suck. You're just agreeing with that emotion. You don't necessarily have to understand it. You just need to be able to accept that that's what they are feeling and acknowledge it. And what you really, really do not want to do is negate. Because when you take away from it, you're asking them to prove because validation, like I said, is that human need. And if you don't receive it, you're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until you do. For example, if, you know, I'm saying, oh gosh, I'm just having a really tough day today. And Jake says, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm having a tough day too. You'll get over it. Well, no, you don't understand. And then I'm going to get bigger. And then maybe I'll start crying and then bigger and bigger. And eventually I might even start being suicidal or talking about suicide because what I'm hearing is you're not hearing how upset I am. And so I need to be upset bigger so that I can get the validation I need to start feeling better. Now, you don't have to keep validating consistently and continuously forever, but starting at that validation point and going, oh my gosh, that must be difficult. Oh my gosh, that must be hard. That's always a great place to start. And then if you can have some empathy and understanding, that's ideal because that can really help with the validation as well because it can make it that much more true and authentic. And it's not just about putting yourself in their shoes. It's about putting yourself in their mind and their body as well. Because if you're just putting yourself in their shoes, you're taking your perspective and your lived experiences and your abilities and disabilities in their life. And that's not what's happening. They have their own experiences, their own history, their own abilities, their own struggles, and that's where they're at. And so the more you can do to enter that frame of mind, to understand what it must have been like to have childhood trauma, to understand what it must be like to be obsessed with food and not want to eat, those kinds of things, if you can broaden your mind to encompass them and build that empathy and understanding, it's really going to deepen that connection. Now, you may not always be able to do that. But if you can, it's ideal. It is important to remember that you're not always going to be able to put yourself in that person's shoes. Because if you have not experienced certain things, you may literally not be able to comprehend it. If you have somebody in your life who is 
experiencing debilitating depression and you've never had even just moderate levels of depression, it's going to be really hard for you to even wrap your head around what they're going through. So even if you can't relate to them, try to develop empathy and understanding in other ways, even if that's more objective. So going back to what we've mentioned before, educating yourself about their diagnosis and maybe about other people's lived experience with a similar diagnosis. So at least objectively, you can start seeing what they might be going through, even if you can't really relate to it, because that can at least help you to establish that foundational understanding so that you can actually start being more supportive of them. I also try to remember to think about where that person is in their process. Like I've spent years working on myself and learning a lot of things about myself. But just as I mentioned before, with putting myself in my younger, in my younger self shoes, I have to think about where this person is in their process. And I especially keep this in mind if the person that I'm trying to support is an adult and they're just dealing with these things for the first time. Maybe they just experienced a trauma or they just recognized that it was a trauma. Maybe they just got a diagnosis or maybe it's a new mental health issue that just came up for them. Either way, this is a new experience for them. And if this is the very beginning for them, that is a very daunting process. Try to have empathy if for nothing else, try to have empathy for the fact that this is a very difficult thing that they are just now tackling for the first time. And it is something that will ultimately alter their life forever. Because when you are dealing with mental health struggles or you're processing trauma and you're doing that for the first time, over those initial few months and years, everything changes. The way you look at the world, the way you remember things, the way you see other people, the way you interact with other people, the way that you perceive yourself, everything changes. So if the person that you're trying to support is just in the beginning stages of their healing journey, they are almost definitely very overwhelmed. So even if you can't wrap your head around the specifics of what they're going through, try to at least understand and empathize with the fact that they are tackling something huge that is life-changing for them. Another way you can try to build empathy and understanding if if you're struggling with that is to take small things that you may experience because most mental health struggles are based on just typical everyday normative behaviors or normative feelings or normative experiences and they're just bigger and bigger and bigger so for example have you ever almost been in a car accident where you're suddenly see the person in front of you is stopped and you have to slam on the brakes and you get that race of adrenaline into your system and you're terrified that you're going to get into a crash or terrified that you might die Well, imagine having that feeling of terror all the time. It doesn't just come up because something happened and it doesn't go away once the experience is gone. It's just there constantly for no reason you can understand. If you can think about what that experience was like and pretend that you had that constantly, you might be getting to understand what anxiety is like. And so if you can take little tiny examples of your daily life and expound that to a larger scale, you can then possibly begin to understand some of these mental health struggles. There's also a lot of information out there about lived experiences and people that have this that try to share so that you can help 
build an understanding of what's going on. When you come to supporting somebody, keep in mind also to not want to fix them. A lot of us, we are those fairy godmothers. We want to come in with that magic wand and we want to fix everything and make it all better. This is not what needs to happen with mental health support. First off, trying to fix somebody or thinking that person needs to be fixed can be offensive. Depending on the person, depending on their diagnosis, depending on their perception of it, it can be downright offensive being told you need to be fixed or cured or treated. For example, I am autistic. When people start talking to me about diets that can cure my autism or supplements that can make me less autistic, I get offended because I don't necessarily see my autism as a disorder or a disease. I see it as part of who I am. I see it as a different way of operating. So when you come in and tell me how to cure my autism, you're coming in and saying, this portion of you is wrong and we should make it go away. And that is extremely offensive. And even if the person wants that part of them to go away, such as with depression. Most people don't want to be depressed. They would like that to be fixed. They would like it to disappear. It's not your job to fix them. And it's not something, it's not something you can do to begin with. But even if you could, it's not really a good idea to do that because it undermines them. They need to be able to do the work. They have to be able to go down this path, whatever that path may be, whether it's medication, whether it's therapy, whether it's mindfulness practices, whatever it is, they need to find the tools that are going to work for them and they need to invest the time and effort to resolve this problem. Because if they're not the ones invested in resolving the issue or finding ways to work around it or finding ways to support it, it's not going to work. It's just going to undermine their ability to do it. And it's going to build up that idea, like Ivy said earlier, that they're broken and they can't do it and they can't fix it. So somebody else needs to. And that's not a mindset you want to foster because it's not helpful to growth or healing or just being okay on a daily basis. You also need to be really aware too that depending on how much support you're trying to give somebody, that will forever change the relationship that you have with them. Because I, I think a lot of people fail to see that because in that moment, especially if it's somebody that you're close to and you really love, you want to do everything in your power to help them. And you're very well-intentioned and you're very motivated and you care deeply and you want to help. But sometimes that can be taken too far. It can actually make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to do the work on their own if you're trying to step in and do too much. Also, if you step into that degree and you're offering a ton of support to the point where you're almost taking care of them, that is enabling. That becomes a codependent relationship, which is not healthy for either person. You are now this person's caregiver. If you take it to that level, you are now their caregiver. If this is your spouse, well, guess what? They're no longer really your spouse. Now they are your dependent. If this person is a friend of yours, they're not really your friend anymore. They are a dependent. When support becomes unhealthy, it gets taken out extreme. You form these codependent dynamics with people that are very hard to get out of. And I would say impossible to come back from completely. It alters that relationship forever. Once you have been somebody's caregiver, it's very difficult to just be their spouse anymore, to just be their friend anymore, because you feel a level of responsibility for that person 
and they feel a level of dependency on you that is very hard to break. Maybe it is possible, but it is very, very challenging to undo that once it's been done. Another simple way to help support somebody is to just be present. And I know we've talked about it before, but the Eeyore philosophy, all of the little people in the Hundred Acre Woods, they didn't try to fix Eeyore. They didn't try to make him better. They didn't tell him he had to take antidepressants or if he didn't go to therapy, they weren't going to see him anymore. They just were there with him. They invited him to their picnics and they went on adventures together even though he was depressed, they were just present with him and they accepted him as he was. And I think that's a very, very important part of supporting somebody. Now, if you want to get a little more challenging, (laughs) I guess if we want to put it that way, there are a couple other things you can do to help support, but you have to make sure it's a balanced approach with these. So the first of these is commiseration. And essentially, this is kind of like throwing the person a pity party. And there is something to be said for a good pity party because it can be it can be really validating and it can be so nice to vent and it can be so nice to take off a mask of positivity if you have to carry that and to just be like, life sucks. I really don't like it right now. It's very validating experience. But a really good pity party can suddenly become a very dark, icky pity party if you take it too far. Yeah. And when you do take it too far, this can be something that can lead to a person dying because you, if you engage in this negativity too much, then you can actually goad somebody into suicide. There's that, uh, that case, Michelle Carter and how she got into that really, really bad dynamic with her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, and eventually he ended up committing suicide because they just got in this dynamic with each other where she was essentially, in the end, starting to really encourage him to go through with it. That is taking things way too far. You definitely don't want to go there. A good pity party is one where you are just validating the experience. And when somebody's going through something, being like, yes, what you're going through right now that sucks, man. And what you're feeling right now, that is valid. And yeah, you are going to get through it and you are going to be stronger for it. And you're going to learn a lot from it, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it sucks right now. And it's okay for you to feel shitty about it in the moment. I think another thing that's really important when you're trying to help somebody, and this is another one of the, these more uh, advanced skills to develop is learning how to challenge that person and what they're saying and what they're experiencing, because yes, it's good to throw them a pity party every once in a while. It's good to be validating. It's it's good to be present for them and all of that. But sometimes you still have to challenge them. And that kind of goes back to what Autumn was talking about way earlier in the episode, where sometimes she's had to challenge me because she could see that my behavior was drastically different and more concerning than it normally is. And so the usual way that she would handle things with me wasn't going to work. And she needed to challenge me. She needed to call me out on it. She needed to take a different approach. That's one example of how you can challenge somebody. Sometimes it is necessary to challenge them and what they're saying and where their headspace is at, because sometimes you have to help break them out of a cycle. You have to get them out of that sneaky hate spiral where they think everything is horrible and it's going to stay that way forever and it's never going to get any better. And they get really extreme in those viewpoints and they catastrophize and they escalate and they start feeling worse and worse and worse and they get themselves all riled up about it. 
it's important to be able to pull them back with a bit of a reality check. You don't have to be super harsh about this. You can be really gentle about it and try to be objective and try to be specific. I think being specific and objective is absolutely crucial when you're going to challenge somebody. So like Ivy said, sometimes, yes, you definitely need to validate, you need to commiserate, but there is a time that comes when you need to challenge. This is especially true if there's faulty thinking or emotions are out of control. So depression makes you think everybody hates you. Anxiety makes you think everything's going to go wrong. Those are faulty beliefs. Those are faulty feelings. And so sometimes it is beneficial to come in and challenge that, but you've got to be specific. So an excellent example, whenever I have a social interaction, I come out of it and I'm pretty sure everybody there hates me. I, I just know it. I'm convinced they don't like me. And it gets to the point I start thinking about it, obsessing. And I'm like, not only do they not like me, I think they're going to start doing harm. I know that they know my boss. I think they're going to say something bad about me to my boss. And then I'm going to get fired. Initially, my boyfriend was like, no, that's not true. That doesn't help me. Just saying it's not true is in no way helpful to me. So what he learned to do for me, which I had to coach him on how to do this, was, okay, what is the evidence you have that everybody hates you? Let's start there. What is the evidence you have? Well, you know, they weren't talking much. Okay. They weren't talking a lot. Did you notice that they had about 12 shot glasses in front of them and had been drinking for the past two hours? I guess that's right. So is it possible that maybe they had drunk a little much? I guess so. That makes sense. And is that also possible why they looked like they were uncomfortable and got up to leave because maybe they had to go to the bathroom and throw up? Oh, yes. I could see how that's a thing. So you're taking the scenario that they've painted. You're taking this faulty belief and you're giving very specific evidence showing that maybe there's an alternate scenario. But again, if you just negate it, you're going to sound invalidating and I'm going to start coming up with a lot of reasons why, no, I'm right. Let me prove to you I'm right. But if you could help me start reality checking using objective evidence and things that you've seen and repainting that picture, that's a really great way to challenge somebody. Now, it is possible that when you are trying to help somebody that has mental struggles and you want to support them, they may need support beyond you. Because again, you are a friend, you are a coworker, you are a family member, you are not a therapist, you are not a mental health professional, and you don't want to be that for that person because you want to have the relationship you do have with them. So sometimes you need to help them find some resources. And we've got some resources to help you find some resources. So the first of these is support groups. Sometimes a person doesn't necessarily need full-out therapy, but they do need somebody else that's going through the same situation. This is especially true if the people around them can't quite understand it. Pretty much anything you can think of, there's a support group for it. We'll put a website up on our resource page. It's from Mental Health America, and they list a ton of different support groups. Sometimes all you need is just somebody that's going through what you're going through. The nice thing about support groups is they are usually vetted to some degree. So this is a step above just people meeting at a bar or a social media group. You actually have some sort of structure so that things don't get out of hand and they don't get toxic. Now, it's also possible that the person may need something such as work accommodations. If the person's struggling enough, but it's starting to interfere with work, 
that may be an issue. And maybe they don't need a therapist at that point, but they do need somebody that knows a little bit more about HR and the discrimination laws and whatnot. If you're looking for that, I would definitely suggest JAN. It's the Job Accommodation Network. And this is a not-for-profit organization that helps people with disabilities figure out how to get accommodations at jobs. They're awesome and they offer free support. Now, if somebody's looking for practical help, because sometimes when you have mental health struggles, you actually just need help paying bills or getting food for your kids or paying for the electric bill that week, 211. You can dial this and it's also 211.org. It offers tons of resources, both national and local, that can help you get practical support. All right. Now, if you want to help somebody actually get into treatment and therapy and to find that more professional mental health support, we also have some resources for that. So first and foremost, there's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. This is a government agency, and they basically offer service referrals. They help help you to locate professionals in your area to help you get that support that's necessary. And then there's also openpathcollective.org. This one is very near and dear to my heart because I actually found my therapist on Open Path Collective and it has been game changing for me. She is the best therapist that I have ever worked with. And the most amazing thing about Open Path Collective is that they do operate on a sliding scale. It is not really based on your income, though. All of their therapists that they have on there charge between $30 and $60 per session. So if you if you don't have insurance or you can't afford to go to any other sort of mental health professional, this is a great place to start because these are really good practitioners, but they, they are charging considerably less for their services. This made it possible for me to actually get therapy. I know there's also, everybody hears about it. If you listen to other podcasts, uh, betterhelp.com, if you can afford that, that's great. Uh, that was a little bit outside of my price range, but I have heard amazing things about BetterHelp. So that's another option there for you. And then we also have on our website, but we also have a resource page that just has a ton of hotlines for crisis situations and all sorts of other mental health resources. So you can check that out. And again, we will have that on our resources page for this episode. Now, if a person is in therapy or they have started seeking support, you can also help support the therapeutic process. So if somebody does need that higher level of professional support, your job's not done because again, you guys have different jobs. There's the therapist and then there's you as the family member or the friend or the coworker. So to help support somebody that's in therapy, you can sometimes even participate in the process as appropriate. Depending on the nature of your relationship, you might even be invited to attend sessions or maybe if the person has wraparound support, this is where they have case management and a doctor and a therapist and maybe a community aid, something along those lines, they might invite you to the meetings to participate in those. And that's perfectly acceptable if you feel comfortable doing that. That's usually more common in family relationships or intimate partner relationships. But again, if that person has pretty much control over what's going on with them and they don't want you there, don't butt in. But if they invite you, consider being willing to participate in that process. I, I also want to make mention here that another way that you can be supportive of their therapeutic process is just being there as a sounding board for them. 
because one of the, the most helpful things for me as I've been going through my therapeutic process is I'll have my session with my therapist. I will make some breakthroughs. I'll have some of these epiphanies. I'll be seeing something in a different way. And then I get out of that session with her and I'm still trying to process that information. And sometimes I just need to talk to somebody about it, about these things that I'm learning about myself or about the world. And so I'll call Autumn or I'll call one of my other friends and I'm not asking them to be a therapist. I'm not asking for them to do anything really. I just need to put it out there in words. I just need a sounding board. And sometimes I need validation too, that, hey, that's awesome that you actually got to this point, that you made that breakthrough. Don't try to force somebody to have those conversations with you, but be open to it. And when they do have those conversations with you, be conscious not to interfere in the therapeutic process. Don't invalidate where they're at in that process. Don't invalidate what they're learning about themselves. Don't challenge their, their therapist unless you see that something very unhealthy and unethical is going on. Trust that that therapist is working with them at the level that they need and embrace your role of support by just being that sounding board for them and just being that source of validation for them. Because as they're going through this healing journey, they're probably going to, to come across some really challenging things or they're going to come across some very liberating things and they're going to want to talk about it to somebody. And that's a really awesome way that you can just be there for them. It's just listen, just be there to listen and validate them. And as Ivy said, it's very important to not invalidate the therapist, especially if you tend to be somebody that responds angrily or is having to process a lot of anger or a lot of fear. The therapist is there helping you bring this to the surface. And so for a lot of people at some point in therapy, they will be pissed at their therapist. They will tell you what a bitch this person is, how horrible they are, how they're failing them. There may be a lot of negative, a lot of negative feedback about the therapist. And it's perfectly acceptable to validate that and be like, wow, it sounds like you're having a really hard time. It sounds like you're really struggling with your therapist right now. But try your best to not undermine the therapist unless, like Ivy said, you actually actively know that there's something toxic or dangerous or just completely wrong going on there. If you are concerned that the person's therapist is possibly unethical or harming them or isn't effective, there are some things you can look for. We'll put a couple links up to the resources page. Um, one will be some red flags that you can look for and another one will be a source from NAMI about how to even tell if a therapist is effective. So those will give you some ideas because it can feel it can feel very concerning, especially if you're very loyal to the person, you really love them and they come at you telling this this person is making them go through all these horrible things and you just want to to, to lash out and protect the person. But unfortunately, sometimes growth and therapy is very difficult and very challenging. So if you do feel you need to challenge that therapist, do a lot of research beforehand to make sure that it's a valid reason to, to challenge them and not just because you want to be loyal and you want to keep that person feeling comfortable. And I think it's also important to note as somebody who has been through therapy more than once, the therapeutic process is not always going to be easy. It will make you feel vulnerable. It will make you feel awkward. It will make you feel defensive and pissed off at your therapist from time to time. Those are normal things. So if you are supporting somebody who is going through a therapeutic process and they're expressing some of those things, that's pretty normal. 
when the when the person is in therapy, you can also check in. And it doesn't even have to be therapy. I mean, it might be a support group. It might be that they have case management or other group therapy that they're doing. Whatever the treatment is, feel free to check in. Just, hey, how is it going? You don't necessarily need to get details, but just show interest and make it just a thing because there is still a lot of stigma around therapy and some people might be ashamed about it. But if you just treat it like just another thing, you know, you get coffee, you go to care therapy, you took your dog for a walk. It can also help break down that stigma and make them feel less ashamed of seeking therapy and therefore more open to the therapeutic process. When somebody is getting professional support or professional treatment, it's also important to remember that that is not a one-way street. Healing is not a one-way street. It is up, down, backwards, round and round, and in knots. So sometimes it may seem like the person's getting worse or struggling more and then getting better and they're doing great and then they have a relapse or they're struggling again. This is all very common. This is just part of having mental health struggles, period, even if you're not necessarily in support or treatment. And just being supportive of that because healing and mental health is a constant, continuous balance. And it's a journey that you're going to be on the rest of your life. So be willing to be there on the journey with them. Okay. So now that we've talked about uh, helping them get into treatment and therapy, well, what do you do when they don't? want help. What do you do in that situation? Consider getting help by proxy. We'll start with uh, what we have on our website. Again, referencing back to what I mentioned before, where we have an entire list of resources that is mental health-based resources, hotlines, crisis hotlines, all sorts of stuff. We have that on our website and we will again link that in the resources page for the episode as well. And then if the person that you're trying to support is a veteran, there's a really great program through the VA, and I have actually taken advantage of this before because I've actually been romantically involved with many veterans in my life. And Coaching Into Care is a fantastic helpline for the loved ones of veterans who are struggling with mental health issues, but they, they're reluctant to get treatment or they don't want to get treatment or they're in crisis and they won't call themselves. Coaching Into Care is a number that you can call as a loved one who just wants to support this veteran in your life. And they will talk you through the options. They'll talk, talk to you about well how you can maybe begin a conversation with them or how you can maybe try to convince them to get into therapy. They will also run through a list of questions with you. If you're unsure of whether or not it's a crisis, they'll kind of verify a little bit more to see, okay, how serious is this? What do we need to do? Which is really, really helpful if you're stressed out and you don't really know what all is going on. They really help break it down for you. They tell you what options there are for you to help them. They'll tell you what options there are for the veteran. And in cases where maybe that veteran is really struggling uh, and you don't know how to broach it, you can actually have them call that veteran. doesn't guarantee that the veteran is going to answer, but they will make an attempt to call and see if they can talk them into seeking out some treatment as well. I really love coaching into care. They've been really helpful for me in many situations. 
there aren't as many resources for civilians that target specifically the individuals that are trying to support or trying to encourage somebody into therapy. But you can call the hotlines on somebody else's behalf. They also have what they call warm lines. These are usually state specific. And instead of thinking, oh my gosh, this person's going to kill themselves, it's more and more along the lines of, oh my gosh, this person is really struggling right now. So they're not a crisis hotline, but instead they're a struggling line if you want to consider it more like that. And you can always call into a hotline or a warm line on behalf of somebody else to get some information, to get some suggestions. I've never done it myself, but I have heard that they offer some of the things that Coaching Into Care does, which is helping you understand what is or is not a crisis and giving you some points on how to talk to the person and maybe suggesting treatment for them. But I don't know that any of them will actually call the person for you because, again, like I said, there's just not as many options in the civilian world. Now, if you do know that they need to get help and you've gotten some advice and you're just you're not really not sure where to go from there, it's really about patience. If the person does need help beyond you, needs that professional level, and they're not willing to get it, it's about being patient and consistent. You're keeping an eye out for opportunities when they arise and trying to baby step them into it. You do not want to badger them. It's not like, see, this is why I told you you need therapy. And don't don't always wait for for something to go wrong to talk about it. So don't just wait until the person's really depressed again and be like, now you need therapy and you're just adding more and more stress on them. So talk about it in the good times as well. If there's somebody that consistently struggles up, down, up, down, talk about getting support, not just during the hard times, but also in the good times where they may have more of the resources available to actually seek support out. Not only will they have more resources more than likely during those good times to seek out that support, they'll also be in a better headspace to really make the most of that support right away. Because when they're when somebody gets to a point where they're in crisis, they got to get through that crisis first before they can even really start tackling things. But if they can be consistent and, you know, seek out therapy when they're in a relatively good space, that helps them start building coping skills before they even go into that next crisis. So yeah, don't always wait for things to get bad. Bring it up beforehand. I think everybody could probably stand to at least check in with a therapist from time to time, even if things are good, just to make sure that you're on track and you've got good coping skills to manage your stress. Whether you're somebody who struggles with mental health consistently or not, I think that's just a really good practice for for anybody. You can also help them by trying to shift their perspective of what it is that they're going through. Because sometimes people are really reluctant to get that help or they're in denial about even needing it because, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of stigmas around having mental health struggles. There's a lot of shame around it. And so there's plenty of people out there who don't even want to acknowledge that maybe they need help, who don't want to acknowledge that they're struggling with their mental health because they perceive it as making them weak or defective or broken or weird or fucked up somehow. Try to see if you can help them to just accept where they're at and just treat it as it's like any other day. Everybody's got struggles. You know, don't invalidate them by pretending like their struggles are the same as everyone else's, but it's important to remind them that, yeah, everybody has struggles. 
it would be great if everybody got some help. There's nothing wrong with that. I know in my life, one of the tools that I've used when I'm trying to support somebody into considering at least therapy or treatment of some kind is by treating my own mental health things as casual. Like I talk about my bipolar openly. I, I've recently discovered that I have ADHD. I talk about that openly too. It's not a big deal. We make it a big deal in this society, but it's not a big deal. And so if you can just talk about it like it's any other thing, like it's any other thing with health, like it's any other day-to-day -day thing, that can help somebody shift their perspective and be more receptive to the idea of getting therapy, of getting treatment, of opening up, of looking for support, of accepting it when it's given. If somebody's reluctant to get support, it's also important to check into why are they reluctant? Because a lot of times we automatically go to the idea of stigma and shame and they're in denial and they don't want to deal with their stuff. But what if they have no means to drive to the therapy session? What if they can't afford therapy? What if they don't even know how to find a therapist? Because those are also valid reasons people may not seek support, and they may be equally embarrassed around that. In this country, being poor is somehow a shameful embarrassment that's your fault. That is the propaganda that we're given. It's not true, but it's there. So it's it's good also to dig a little deeper to see why are they not seeking support. And then if you can assist them in that, do that. You know, if they can't make it because they can't drive, are you able to help them out with that? Are you able to get them money for the bus? Are you able to help give them the ride them, the, yourself? If they feel overwhelmed and they're just like, yeah, I know I need to get into therapy, but I just, I can't figure out which one and I can't focus enough to, maybe you can sit down with them and find a particular resource and assist them in calling different therapists or finding just a therapist so that they can just start with somebody and go from there. Now, sometimes the person is not going to seek help at all, and they are going to get worse and worse and worse. There are many people out there that are not going to seek help until they reach rock bottom. For whatever reason, that's just how it has to be. And at that point, you've got a couple options. Option one is you let them know that that's not okay with you and you step out of their life. And that is a valid option because watching somebody go down in flames, watching them constantly treat their life like a tissue that they're just willing to discard is absolutely heartbreaking when you love somebody. And that can be way too much for you to deal with. And sometimes stepping out is the wake up call that that person needs. And even if it's not, again, you cannot save this person. You cannot fix them. You cannot change them. You cannot do the work for them. They have to do it. And if they're unwilling, you can't force it. The other option you have is damage mitigation. That is when you start getting into some of the crisis intervention. It may not always be at a crisis, but at some point it may get to a crisis. And that's where your hotlines come in and that is where your professional support comes in. And if we have enough interest, we may talk about supporting somebody during a crisis in another future episode. And then on, on a final note today, I do want to say whether the person is, you know, uh, reluctant to go into a higher level of support that they need or they aren't and they don't need it or they are in it, it is also important to hold the person accountable. Just because you have mental health struggles does not give you a right to be an asshole. When you have mental health struggles, at some point, you most likely will be an asshole. And that is what's going to happen. You will make mistakes. You will hurt people. You will do something that fucks stuff up. 
the point you're looking for is that that person is trying to not repeat those patterns. They are trying their best to learn new coping skills, to learn new behaviors so that they don't keep doing that. So as long as that person is continuing to reduce the frequency and reduce the intensity of offensive or harmful behaviors towards you, great. But if they just keep coming back at you with, well, there's nothing I can do about it and it's just not my fault, that's whining behavior and they're trying to get out of it and that's not okay. So it is fully okay even when you are supporting someone and I would say highly recommended when you're supporting someone to hold them accountable and help them know that there is change that can happen. It may not be perfect change. They may never be the ideal you want them to be or they may never be the ideal they want to be, but there is a way to have mental health struggles and to not be an asshole to other people. I, I am living proof of this. Likewise, I am also living proof of, proof of that. I, I think it's also really important when you're going through this process of supporting somebody to have realistic expectations of what is possible. Some things will never change. Some things will. Behaviors, those things can be worked on. Those things can be changed. But just because somebody is not acting normative by societal standards does not mean that everything needs to be fixed or that everything can be fixed. And it's important for you to have a reasonable expectation of what healthy is going to ultimately look like for that person and to not expect them to ever get to a point where they're fully cured and everything is perfect because that's not how it works. No matter how long they work on themselves, no matter how much of their shit they process, no matter how many behavioral modifications they make, there will always be things that are different about them. It's important to remember that. And it's important to remember that not everything that goes along with a mental health struggle is something that needs to be fixed. Have realistic expectations of what healthy looks for them and also have realistic expectations about what happy is going to look like for them because not everybody is meant to be shoved into a tiny box. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. Don't do it to somebody else. Realistic expectations of what's going to be good and healthy and happy for them. And on that note, we will wrap up today. We will have all the resources that we talked about put on our resource page for the podcast. And then also I want to remind everybody, we do have the Grandma Bus Prize contest still going. So if you have topic ideas that you'd like to hear on our podcast, please submit those. If you do, you will be entered a drawing to win the Grandma Bus gift, which you can find out more about on our website. Ivy, if you want to give them that, as well as all of our other connecty bits. Uh, yes, www.differentfunctional.com. We are on Facebook as Different Functional. We are on Instagram and TikTok as uh, Different underscore Functional. And we are on Patreon as Different Functional. And hell, if you want to email us, you can do that too. We're differentfunctional at gmail.com. Or you can also you know, contact us through the contact form on the website. There's lots of ways to get in touch with us. You can comment on our social media stuff. We would like that. We would love some interaction. We really would. If you see us on social media, feel free to comment, reach out. We would love to uh, hear from you guys. We would love to hear from you. Like seriously, why are you not talking to us? Yeah. And also please support the podcast if you are enjoying it and you want to support us, even though we're not 
I don't think either of us is really struggling too much with our mental health at this particular moment. But if you want to support us in other ways and you can't afford to support us on Patreon, that's cool. Tell your friends about us. Tell your family about us. Tell your enemies about us. Tell your dog about us. Like, subscribe, follow, leave comments. Do all the things. Let us know that you're out there and tell other people that we are out there too. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And as always, remember, different does not mean defective. Forget the pain. My mind.